Thank you for bearing with us in this series, uh, which has not been a comfortable one, I don't think. And let me just say, you've been very gracious to me. I've stepped on certain toes, um, but without any real interest in so doing. Been a lot of hurts in the area of marriage and relationships here and everywhere. It's just the way it is. And some of the things I, I've said have identified the wounds that are already there. I don't hope I haven't created woundedness, but, uh, but um, there's, there are sensitivities there, and the subject matter has uh, uh, surely focused on those. And you've been very, very uh, gracious and patience and patient and so on. And my motive, uh, again, is that, uh, is that the, we would pierce the light. The folks out there really need to see that God's way is a better way, not just with respect to salvation, of course, but with respect to relationships and sexuality and marriage and and all the rest. We just have a lot of audacity, let's just admit to it, to suggest to God that what he made needs modification and we have a better idea. We really don't. And you don't have to take that by faith. The evidence is in our face. We're really not doing so well uh, to run the experiment of doing life without the creator of life, without the giver of life. And especially in the area of marriage and sexuality, we're in big trouble uh, folks, and, and my concern, and yours is as well, is that we would be an encouragement to one another in raising the bar. If any of the subjects we have uh, mentioned thus far have been hurtful to you because there's been failure in your life in that area, could we emphasize once again what you know but need to hear again and again, as do all of us, God is a God of all grace. And there is no sin, there is no infraction of the rules so to speak, that's greater than God's willingness and capacity to forgive it. Our sin is really not a problem. Jesus is the solution, and all our sin has been cast behind his back. Now, you and I may have to today deal with the consequences of our sin till the time of the Lord's return, but don't make his separation from us one of those consequences. That is simply not true. He says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. And it's his weddedness to us, which is to be the model for our weddedness to one another. And that's what I want to talk about tonight. So I hope tonight, this is the last uh, message in this series. We'll do something else, Lord, Lord willing, next week. But for tonight, I hope you find encouragement. I don't think this will be hurtful to you in any way. I hope it isn't. Uh, I want you to see the wonders and the glories of what it is to be in a covenant bond with the Lord Jesus Christ as the bride of Christ and in such fashion that he will never let us go. Never, never, never. No matter what, he loves us just as we are. And uh, so the first book of the Bible, introduced, of course, by Almighty God, shows us that he opened human history with a marriage. That's Genesis 2. And then we find out that God the Son opened his public ministry uh, with the same thing, with the marriage in John chapter 2, you know, the wedding at Cana. So this is first of his miracles was designed uh, to bring glory to his name. He could have glorified himself in any arena. It could have been an arena. It could have been a football stadium. It could have been at a church service. And the Lord Jesus Christ uh, chose to be glorified at a wedding. Folks, marriage is intensely important to God. And we have got to figure out why. We have just got to be right about this because he is so intent uh, on marriage being held up and being sanctified and being done the right way. So our goal tonight is to answer this question. What is the big idea of marriage? 
Is it about having children? Is it about companionship? What is it? Is it about, is it the cure to loneliness? I, I don't think it's any of those things. Many couples are not able to have children. That surely does not invalidate their marriage. If you want a companion, you don't have to be married. You can have a friend who's a companion. I don't think marriage is necessarily the cure for loneliness. There are many married couples who are dealing with an intense sense of emotional loneliness, even though they be married. So, so these cannot be the ultimate and grand purposes, God's grand design for marriage. Therefore, what is it? What is the big idea of marriage? And in order to provide an answer, I would like you to patiently bear with me as I share with you the phases in ancient Jewish marriage, the kinds of things that existed in the time of the Lord Jesus. Because my point is to show you that he very, very deliberately, in entering into a covenant with us, very, very deliberately modeled that covenant after the ancient phases and stages of Jewish marriage. And when you see it, I think you'll get an answer to the question, what is the big idea of marriage? So to begin with, here is what happened first in ancient Jewish marriage customs, the likes of which existed in the first century. It is something called the Shiduchim, the Shiduchim. And I know you're dying. I can see it. You're dying to say that with me. So here we go. The Shiduchim. So you got to go to do that. Shiduchim. Yeah. Now you have to apologize to the person in front of you because you just got all kinds of stuff on the back of the Shiduchim. It's the match. Here's what happens. The father of the groom sets this up. That's just the way it was. The father of the groom surveyed the field of prospective eligible brides and made a decision to the best of his ability with regard to which lady would make the best match for his prized son. The father of the groom makes these particular decisions. And it was not unusual for the father of the groom to do this through an agent or representative called the Shadchan. I won't make you say that. Enough is enough. Called the Shadchan. It means the matchmaker, as in Fiddler on the Roof. Remember that? Matchmaker. Sing along. Matchmaker. Make. That's enough. Yeah. So that's the way it was. In the old days, there would be a professional, trusted matchmaker whose job could be male, could be a female, who this person would represent the, the family seeking a, you know, a life partner for their, for their treasured son. And, and so it was typical for the father of the potential groom to do this through the Shad Khan, the agent, the representative. Folks, Our bridegroom is the Lord Jesus Christ, for we are the bride of Christ. And God the Father, Father God, Father of the groom, sent his matchmaker to win us to his treasured, prized, only begotten and beloved son. And the matchmaker is the very Holy Spirit of God. There's not a one of us in a secure covenant bond with Almighty God who simply entered into it out of the blue. I don't understand all the ramifications of this. I'm not that smart. I just want to rejoice in the reality. Here's the reality. When I heard the gospel message, it was a wedding proposal. And in it, the Lord Jesus Christ said, I would like to propose to you. I know everything about you. And yet to me, you're attractive and have worth. If you are willing to have me as your heavenly husband, I will take you 
as part of my bride. What is your answer? Is it yes or no? And I remember on September 5th, 1973, but I remember like it was yesterday. I remember in so many words saying, yes, wonderful bridegroom, I accept your proposal. I would like to be wedded to you. I'd like to enter into a marital covenant with you. And thank you for overlooking all of my flaws and blemishes. Thank you for overlooking all my sins. They're plenteous. I know all about it. And I cannot cover up for them. You see right through me. And the fact that you would have me just as I am is overwhelming. How could I? Say no to a proposal such as that. Why was it, though, on September 5th, 1973, the penny dropped and all this made sense? I heard of Jesus Christ. I was raised in America. I heard of Billy Graham. I see churches. I see people wearing crosses, even though I was raised in the Jewish neighborhood. We knew the name of Jesus. We knew who he was. Why was it on that particular day? I knew I was apart from him. I had no connection. I wasn't wedded to him. It was my fault, not his. Why was it at that particular moment in the military barracks? His proposal made sense to me. What? It was because of the ultimate divine Shadchan. It was the Ruach HaKodesh. It was the Holy Spirit of God who impressed upon me my separation, alienation from Almighty God, and his willingness to be the bridge builder joining me to him in an irreversible bond that exists in spite of my ups and downs. And he said, I'll never let you go. That's the divine matchmaker. And if you are a Christian, if you are a Christian, that very Shadchan, that Holy Spirit, the representative of Almighty God is the one who convicted you of sin and judgment and the capacity to be in right standing with the bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first phase And God Almighty followed that very phase. Let's make a match. If you are a Christian, let me tell you something. You're a Christian because of a match made in heaven. Let me tell you. You ought to feel good about that. You know what our job is? Live up to what's already true of us in Christ Jesus. We're living way below what's true of us. We're acting like everybody out there. When in fact our status is elevated beyond that of everybody out there. So here's the second thing that happens after the match. Next it's something called the mohar. Mohar. Which means the bride price. The mohar. Now this would be provided by the father of the groom. But it would be delivered by the groom himself. Uh, The groom would travel uh, a distance from the father's house. To the home of the prospective bride. And 2,000 years ago. The father of the bridegroom sent him on a journey from his home to ours. And the bride price, the purchase price, the inexpressible gift with which the bridegroom came, carried, so as to persuade us of his intentions to be wedded to us, is an overwhelming bride price. It was his, it was his own life. The father determined what the bride price would be. And the father said, will you drink from this cup? It's the cup of crucifixion. Will you be willing to offer yourself for one such as them? I want them to be in covenant bond with you. And the son said, absolutely. He said, I'll drink the cup of this destiny for them. I I will do it so as to be wedded to them. What an inexpressible 
bride price, in order to obtain a marital bond with the church of Jesus Christ, us, the bride of Christ. This is reflected in 1 Peter chapter 1, 18 and 19. Knowing this, you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold. No, 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 no. But with precious blood. What kind? Well, as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ. The bride price in those days was set in accordance with the perceived worth and value of the prospective bride. The bride price offered for us is the blood of Christ himself. Can you see the worth attached to us by the bride price which has been offered for us? What did you do yesterday? Are you proud of it? Would you like to take the mic and tell us about it? For many of us, the answer would be no. Forget about yesterday. Could you just bask in the sunlight today of the bride price that has been offered for you? Can you just see it? Would you allow yourself this? Would you just see the bride price to be a reflection of your worth in the eyes of the father of the bridegroom. Could you just see that he, the father, was not willing even to withhold the blood of his own son so as to affect a marital bond between ones, unworthy ones, even sinful ones, such as you and I? Would you please see that? Would you just get over your sin? Would you just accept the fact that God's grace is greater than all our sin? Would you just tell him, now that I've confessed it, accepted your forgiveness for it, now help me to live up to what's already true. I am wedded to the bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will never, ever let me go. Well, then there is the next phase, which is called the Shidduchim. Uh, excuse me, after the Shidduchim and the Mohar, the next uh, phase would be one involving Uh, Not the father of the bridegroom, but now the father of the bride who would give her a dowry. It would be part of her inheritance specifically designed to equip her for her new life as a married woman. And it was called the Shiluchim, the Shiluchim. It was the dowry. Uh, Folks, we have been given an overwhelmingly marvelous Shiluchim. It is God's spirit in us. Listen, Second Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21, 22. This is what the Father gave us as part of our inheritance in order to enable us with effectiveness and productivity, with fruitfulness and success, with victory. This is what the Father gave us in order to live the life of a married covenant person in a bond uh, with the Lord Jesus Christ. Second Corinthians 1, verses 21, 22. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us in God is God who also sealed us and gave us the spirit in our hearts as a pledge. The pledge, the down payment, awaiting the consummation of the marriage. It hasn't come yet. He hasn't come for us yet. 
We're waiting for the consummation of the marriage. And sometimes we have doubts about the reality thereof. And the father said, so as to help you, I'll give you a pledge. I'll give you me in you. I'll give you my spirit in you. And my spirit in you will enable you to wait and to watch and to work and to walk with me until the bridegroom comes for you. We are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Listen to me. Forget about what you've done, even as recently as early today. Though you be unfaithful, you are, I am. Please bask in the sunlight of the faithfulness of the one who said, I'll never divorce you. I love you. I love you just the way you are. Hey, by the way, do you hear my voice? I have something like a throat problem or something, and I love this. I like have a manly voice for the first... This is unbelievable. You know, usually it's, usually it's in tonight. We're going to, you know, it's like, this is unbelievable. I do not want this. Don't pray that I'd get better, please. I just. I'm the man. So after all of this is something called the Ketubah. Ketubah. It's a contract. Of covenant. In fact, the word means written. It's a written document stating the rights of the bride and the promises of the groom. Here is a modern day example of a ketubah. We still use them today at Jewish weddings. It's that much writing. The, the rights of the bride, the promises of the groom. And folks, we have been given a ketubah. And you know what it is? It's called the New Testament. <laughs> it's the New Covenant. That is our ketubah. Uh, Hebrews chapter 8 verse 6 says, But now he, the Lord Jesus, has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also, get this, the mediator of a better covenant. He is the mediator of a better ketubah. And we're in on it. And the whole New Testament, read it, it's wonderful, is a reminder of the promises of the bridegroom to us and of all the privileges we have as ones wedded to him and of our commensurate responsibilities as well. The whole New Testament, that is not something to rain on our parade. Are you kidding? It ought to be read with joy. Are you kidding me? That is the stipulation. Those are all the things that God has in store for us as wedded ones wedded to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then follows something called the Kiddushin. The Kiddushin. It's a word which means sanctification or set apart. And uh, the bridegroom at this point would offer the prospective bride a cup of wine. Um, For our sake, he would offer a cup from the fruit of the vine. How about that? That cleans it up, don't you think? Uh, and and what he would do, he would offer it at this point. It would be a part of the proposal, nonverbal part. He would offer the cup to his uh, prospective bride. And she would uh, uh, take from it and drink from it if she accepted the proposal. If not, she could push it away. She had the right to do this. She could push it away. And she, in effect, then would be rejecting the groom's proposal. Folks, that cup was a symbol 
that spoke loudly of the potential of a marriage covenant through which the groom would enter into an irreversible bond with his bride. In keeping with this whole symbol in an ancient Jewish phase of marriage, uh, I think we have the cup of communion, Lord's Supper cup, which we partake of regularly around here. It serves as a symbol of covenant through which the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, has obtained us his bride, the church. And so it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25, in the same way he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. When we accept the cup, we are saying, Lord Jesus, with joy, I accept the cup, a symbol of the covenant with which by faith I have become wedded to you. Thank you for the bride price, which made it all possible, your shed blood. And Lord Jesus, I will partake of this cup regularly in remembrance of the fact that I am wedded to you. I am not my, my own. I'm set apart. I am consecrated. I am to be holy as thou art holy. I am to reserve myself, mind, body, and spirit to you. And every time I partake, I take this cup. It's me saying to you, I accept the terms of the ketubah. You've taken the initiative. You've promised me things. You've bequeathed to me rights and privileges and inheritance, which I do not deserve. And all you look for from me is the right response to it. When I take this cup, I tell you I'm responding rightly to the covenant till it's consummated one day. Now, once the proposal was accepted, the bride partaking of the cup, the groom would say to her these exact words. He would say, and now I go to prepare a place for you. Yeah, woe is fitting. When I found this out, too, I went, oh, my God. Do you know our heavenly husband left nothing to chance? There's not one bit of extraneous material in the Bible. Everything has tremendous meaning. We have, we have the joy of just discovering it little by little till we see him face to face. The groom would say, and now I go to prepare a place for you. And what he would do, the groom, he would go back not to his own home. He had none in those days. He would go back to his father's house. He would not build a home as an independent dwelling for he and his bride who will soon be with him. No, he would create an extra living space in the father's house. It would be the wedding chamber, the bride chamber, unoccupied until his bride is brought back to live with him in his father's house. And he would be about the business of preparing a bridal chamber. And Jewish law said the bridal chamber had to be much better than any home the bride ever lived in. It had to be a reality the likes of which she never saw before. It had to be a vast improvement upon her circumstances. It couldn't be average and ordinary It couldn't be like what she's used to. It had to be better, inexpressibly better. There was a time when the Lord Jesus called his inner circle of disciples to him to meet for Pesach or Passover, 
We call it the Last Supper. It was in a place called the Upper Room. It was a place on a flat roof, as is typical of Middle Eastern dwellings. They went up there. They could have privacy, the Lord and his disciples. Soon after this particular meal, he would be crucified. In fact, just a few hours after the meal. He had been warning them, however, about this for quite a long time. He told them about this. Now he was telling them the time is not. The time of his departure is upon us, he was telling them. They did not receive this well. They loved him at this point. They were attached to him as best they could. They were disturbed by the news of his departure. And he, loving as he is, in this whole context of their dismay, in order to calm their fears, offered to them words, which are magnificent words, uh, recorded for us down to this very day in John chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. He said, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. He is doing exactly what every Jewish groom has done for centuries, in preparing a place for the bride. I go to my father's house to prepare a place for you. And one day you will be there as well. That's what's happening right now. And John 14 continues, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am there, you may be also. You want to know what our bridegroom is doing right now? Preparing a bridal chamber for us, the likes of which is better than anything we ever could have imagined. You cannot imagine the glories and wonders and majesty and magnificent of the place God's son is preparing for us in the father's house. And if you are part of the bride of Christ, that bridal chamber is being prepared for you right now. The Lord is doing exactly what every bridegroom in his day did in anticipation of the consummation of the marital bond. He's preparing a place for us and he will one day return so as to bring us to that very place. And while all this is happening, while the groom is actively engaged in preparing the wedding chamber for his bride, what would she, the bride, be doing? Well, she would be participating in a purification ceremony called the mikvah, the mikvah. It was a place of ritual immersion. Folks, when I became a Christian, I thought we Baptists invented the idea of baptism. You know, I just thought we did. And then I realized, oh, no. My homies came up with that idea. Listen, mikvah means a gathering of waters. Here's an example of one, 2,000 years old. This one was unearthed at Qumran, where they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Essene community who lived there would baptize themselves. They'd go down these very steps, come up on other steps, 
several times during the day. They know the water had no power. It was a symbol. It was ceremonial cleansing before they worshipped, before they prayed, before they opened scripture, before they did any such thing. You find these mikvot, these baptistries, all through the Holy Land. The word means gathering of waters because our laws tell us it has to be a sufficient gathering or volume of water, sufficient to be able to immerse an average size adult entirely. We may take some hits because of the mode of our baptism. Some from other denominations may say, no, our way is more valid. Well, I don't want to fight over it in part ways. I just want to tell those people they're dead wrong. They don't know what they're talking about. But I do it with a smile on my face when I do that. If you smile, you can say all kinds of stuff to people. No, the biblical mode is immersion. We didn't come up with that idea. We're not making up anything. That is the biblical mode, a sufficient gathering of waters so that when you went down into the mikvah, you went down one way, you came out another. Just as we saw this beautiful lady here tonight earlier, essentially say, even without a word, when I go down, It's a way of showing to you, I've been crucified with Christ Jesus. And when I come up, it's a way of showing you, and I share in his resurrection life. Nothing, nothing has changed down to this very day. So the bride would be engaged in repeated uh, visits to the mikvah bath. She would be consecrating, ceremonially cleansing, separating herself apart for her bridegroom. She would be readying herself for his ultimate arrival. And so she would engage in this particular practice of readying herself, sanctifying herself. And in keeping with this, Paul, the apostle, said in 2 Corinthians 11.2, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. You see, I betrothed you to one husband so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. He said that to a rough group of Christians in Corinth. You and I are no more rough than they were. And Paul reminded them of their betrothal to the Lord Jesus Christ, as we are reminded. And he said, I want you to know that you're betrothed to your heavenly husband, and I want you to be about the business. The past is the past. We can't reclaim it. I want you to be about the business from this day forward of being ready to be presented to to your bridegroom when he comes as a pure and spotless virgin. And so that woman who is now betrothed is different. And everyone in the community knew she was different. They called her a consecrated one, a set-apart one, one who'd been bought with a prize. She was no longer her own, and neither are you and I as members of the bride of Christ. We are not our own. We have been bought. With a prize. If that lady in that day went out during the day, she would not go out without wearing a veil. And the veil would indicate, even without a word, get your eyes off me, buddy. I'm taken. That's what she would do. And that's how we, members of the bride of Christ, ought to posture ourselves as we make our way through the world today. Get your eyes off me, Satan. I'm taken. Get your eyes off me, worldly ways. I'm taken. Get your eyes off me, cultural modifications of holy matrimony. I'm already married. I've done it God's way. I'm sanctified, consecrated, 
set apart. I don't have a veil, but in my life, I will live a separated life. I don't have to be odd, and I don't have to be weird, and I don't have to be obnoxious. But I belong to somebody else. Get your clutches off me. Come out from among them, our beloved said. Come out from among them. We have been purchased with a prize. After the mikvah, the couple would then participate in this next phase of marriage. They would appear together under something called the chuppah. Chuppah. It's spelled chuppah, but it's actually pronounced chuppah. Chuppah. It's a cool deal. It's a canopy. And the canopy, when the couple made their way under it, would publicly express, again, even out of word, without a word, the couple's sincere intention to be considered betrothed to one another. See, people today say, you know, all this stuff, marriage, ceremony, witnesses, that's just stuff you all made up. We didn't make a thing up. Marriage is not just living together. Marriage is not what you made it to be. There are these elements. This one, the chuppah, is the public exchange of vows. This is where there are witnesses. It's not running away to Las Vegas and getting hitched up in the Elvis Chapel. Come on, man. Don't be doing that. That's an unholy idea about holy matrimony. You get under the chuppah. The Lord Jesus being the way. And when the couple got under it, they were giving. Here's a symbol of a modern day chuppah. Uh, you, people get married under these things even today. Uh, when you get under it, you're saying to people, you're invited under our roof today as witnesses. But from this day forward, you cannot come on your own. You must respect the autonomy of this new household. Mom and dad, we love you. But from this day forward, this relationship will take priority over any other. You've got to let us go, and we've got to go. This will take some time. We'll get used to it. That's what the chuppah is all all about. The couple is now having participated in the chuppah ceremony. They are formally betrothed. They are considered as if they are married, and yet they have not yet come together physically. Pre-marital sex is an unholy twist on holy matrimony. I know it's commonplace. I understand it. I know it is statistically the norm today. But we don't take our marching orders from statistics. We take our marching orders from the Ketubah, the New Testament. The world doesn't love me and you. The world will chew us up and spit us out. But the Lord Jesus has enveloped us with a hug that will not let us go. Why do I want to cheat on the one who loves me most? I just don't want to do that. I just don't want to do that. So, so, so the couple is now formally betrothed, but they've not yet come together physically. In fact, they are still living apart from one another. After the chuppah ceremony, the groom goes back to live with his parents and the bride goes back to live with hers for sometimes an extended period of time. He's putting the finishing touches on the wedding chamber, don't you see? But betrothal was so binding that a couple who wanted out of it would in fact need an officially authorized religious bill of divorcement in order to annul the ketubah. And the woman could not exercise that option. 
The man could choose in an ungodly way to divorce his wife. But the woman had no such option. Now listen, we are the bride of Christ. We assume the feminine role. Some of us here are, are, uh, continue to punish ourselves with thoughts of the loss of our salvation. It's a free country. You can keep beating yourself up if you want to, but there's no justification for it because as the bride of Christ, you don't have the permission to divorce him. It's just not possible. Who do you think you are? You can throw a hissy fit one day and not want to talk to him and be angry with him and all the rest. But he's not letting you go. You think you're going. You ain't going nowhere. He has his eye upon you. He knows exactly what's going on in your heart. You neither have the power nor the authority to affect divorcement from the Lord Jesus Christ. He does, but will not. He will not. He hates the concept of divorce. How could he proclaim something to be something he hates and then do it? He is never going to divorce you. The basis of the assurance of your unbreakable weddedness to him, the assurance of your salvation, had nothing to do with you. Now, that's when we get in trouble. We start looking inside, and the picture we get is not very pretty. We hold up a mirror to ourselves, and the image is... It's ugly. It's ugly. We say, nobody could love me, especially not Almighty God. But it isn't about you. The basis of the assurance of our salvation is his proposal, his covenant. He established it. He's going to maintain it, sustain it, consummate it. It had nothing to do with you. Listen, something happened in the Old Testament that God said to Israel, and it applies to Israel first and foremost. Some of us just skip over the context. That's an error. But the other error is to fail to see it also applies to us, the church of Jesus Christ. So that being the case, can I just read this to you? It's in Hosea chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. Look what it says. God speaking. I will betroth you to me. It's speaking to Israel. By extension, we are new covenant people. It applies to us. I betroth you to me. For how long? Forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me. How? In righteousness and in justice, in loving kindness and in compassion. And I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. It's not our faithfulness. It's his. The basis of our assurance of salvation is the character, the quality character of the one to whom we are betrothed. We do not yet possess that quality character. Stop looking to find some reason for God to stick with you. There ain't none. You stink and so do I. Let's just face it. But not to our betrothed. In fact, he sees us to be a fragrant aroma, washed in the mikvah of his shed blood. He has really prettied us up. He has perfumed us up. He sees us for who we'll be. He sees us to be complete one day entirely in him, sanctified one day entirely, holy. He sees us. He sees us to be his bride without spot or wrinkle. Can you imagine that? It's it's his righteousness, his justice, his loving kindness, his compassion, his faithfulness, which is the basis 
of our unbreakable weddedness to him. It has nothing to do with us. After the mikvah, after the chuppah, after the preparation for the wedding chamber by the groom, now would come the time for him, the groom, to fetch his bride. But it is not the groom who would determine the time at which he would go and get his bride. Do you know who would determine the time? The father. That is right. And this is exactly the case, isn't it, with us regarding the coming of our bridegroom, the Lord Jesus. Listen to Mark chapter 13, verse 32. But of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the bridegroom, the son, but the father alone. The bride would be keeping herself Busy in preparation for this magnificent day, her wedding day. She would be watching and she would be waiting and she would making her, be making herself ready. And that's exactly what we're supposed to be doing. Watching and waiting, not with joy, perfect love casts out, not with fear, I mean perfect love, his to us, casts out fear. With joy, with anticipation, being ready, getting prettied up, preparing our pure and spotless wedding gown. We're supposed to be waiting. We don't know when the time is. And so we're told in Mark chapter 13, verse 33, take heed, keep on the alert. You don't know when the appointed time will come. Just the excitement, just the anticipation, just the enthusiasm. What will it be like to be in a face-to-face relationship with our bridegroom? When it was time, the groom would be accompanied to his bride's home by his friends. They would be called friends of the bridegroom, just as it is mentioned in the Gospels. And the friends of the bridegroom would lead him in a procession to the bride's home. Oftentimes it would be at night. She might be unprepared, kind of sleeping. They would shout and blow shofarim, trumpets. I'm not lying to you. Wake up from your sleep and from your slumber. Your bridegroom is coming. She would light a lamp. Darken Israel, hills, valleys, all the rest. No stumbling, no mistaking. I want to make sure I recognize my bridegroom and I want to make sure he knows it's me. She'd be warned by shouts and by trumpets and all the rest. And you know about this parallel as it concerns us, don't you? About the Lord's coming back for us as recorded in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will descend, he'll come for his bride, will descend from heaven with a shout. Well, I think it says that. That is exactly what the custom was in ancient Jewish wedding. He'll descend with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the shofar, the trumpet of God. I don't know what it's going to sound. I imagine in my mind sometimes. What is it? Oh, my goodness. Majestic, glorious, unmistakable. And the dead in Christ will rise first, and they deserve to rise first. I'm okay. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up 
together with them in the clouds to meet the bridegroom, the Lord in the air. And then what happens? And so we shall always see temporary marriage is an unholy twist on holy matrimony because it's a poor reflection of the always marriage which we have with the Lord. And then we will always be, the bride will be carried off with her new husband to a special place he has been preparing for us. And this phase of the marriage is called the nisuin. Nisuin. It's a Hebrew verb. You know what it means? To carry. To rapture. To carry. Just as the Lord will carry us out of this place, up in the air to meet him. Why will he have to do that? Well, let's just face it. Some of us don't want to go. I mean, it. we just get so comfortable with stuff around here. You know, the bridegroom, he bought us. He loves us. and He knows better than us. He's not saying, are you ready? Do you want to go? You want to give it a second thought? Oh, no. He's going to, he, we're going to, we're going to be caught up. He's going to, it's the Nisuin. He's going to carry, he's, he's taking us. He's just taking us. That's the way it is. Heavenly husband. He leads. He's taking us to a far better place. And so during the Nisuin, the bride would carry, uh, would be carried by the bridegroom to the bridal chamber. He, he would, he would take her to this place he had been preparing for quite a long time right now. When they would arrive, there's still a crowd of people. It's a little awkward as I try to envision it, but that's just the way it is. There would be a crowd of people and they would escort the couple into the bridal chamber. They would not go in. They'd camp outside. I'm not lying to you. They just position themselves outside. It's a little odd, but you know, that's, we just do a lot of odd things. And, and they would enter into physical union for the first time. They would consummate the marriage to which they had entered into by covenant earlier on. First covenant. First, the public expression of vows, then the physical consummation. We have so reversed it. We are screwy. We are messing up everything. We told God we think we have a better idea. After the physical consummation of the marriage, when the marriage was consummated, the husband would come out with his new bride. And people would go, Mazel Tov, Mazel Tov. They'd rejoice. They'd clap. I know it's a little awkward, but that's just the way it is. I mean, and then what would happen is an unbelievable celebration, a wedding reception called the Wedding Supper. It would begin right now. It's not just a sit-down meal. It would last for a full week of seven days. Seven being the number of completion and perfection and wholeness in the Bible. And there would be music and there would be, sorry folks, there would be dancing like crazy. Not crazy honky-tonk dancing. Who came up with that stuff? It would be circle dancing and all this kind of stuff, celebratory and lots of food and all the rest and it would be what we call a simcha, a celebration, and it would last for just a long, long time. The Apostle Paul knew about this because he was Jewish. His name was Yochanan, John, I mean, the Apostle John, Yochanan. He wrote about, knowing about this, he wrote about the fact that it's going to happen to us in due season, sometime, when, I don't know, only the Father knows. 
That's why when we all rush out to buy books, giving us the dates of the return of the bridegroom, you done wasted your money. Come on. That's not good. That's a waste of money. That's not good. You can be contributing that money to send those people to Ethiopia. You don't need to buy. Nobody knows when the return. That's the idea, the anticipation, the excitement, the enthusiasm, the, the steadiness, the readiness, the preparedness for all this kind of stuff. And anyway, when the time is coming, the wedding reception, John knew about this. And he said, I'm telling you, this is going to happen to you. And so he recorded this in Revelation chapter 19, beginning in verse 5. And a voice from the throne saying, John said, I heard a voice from the throne saying, give praise to our God. All you, his bond servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude. And like the sound of many waters and, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. Then he said to me, right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And now I think I understand what is the big idea of marriage. Marriage, as we know it here, is meant to be an earthly reflection of a heavenly reality. There is no marriage in heaven. Did you know that? I do not understand all the ramifications of that. And I'm real fine not knowing everything. I just know what it says. There is no marriage in heaven. Therefore, our marriages here are an earth meant to be an earthly reflection of an unending eternal Heavenly reality, and what is it? It's our weddedness to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why, folks, listen to me. When you and I embrace unholy ideas about holy matrimony, same-gender marriage, uh, premarital physical relationships, Temporary marriage, no fault, divorce, multiple divorces, multiple marriages, all the rest. Marriage mismatch to someone, getting yoked to someone who doesn't bear the yoke of Christ. All these unholy ideas of holy matrimony are not so great that God can't forgive. But one of the consequences is... They mar the reflection of an eternal reality in which one heavenly husband is irreversibly bound to his bride unconditionally, irreversibly, not to exploit the bride, to present her without spot or wrinkle, to love her, to care for her, to lead her, to defend her, to provide for her. Folks, we are losing our voice out there because our lives in here 
look like the lives of those lived out there. I do not want to hurt anybody. I just want to offer a word of encouragement. Do things God's way. A primary, premier, principal means of evangelism is to show a world out there looking for love in all the wrong places. That if you allow yourself to be in the embrace of the only begotten Son of God, you will be loved with a love that will not let you go. But then they say, prove it. We have got to offer to them evidence of the fact that the one to whom we are betrothed has a better way. We have got to declare truth. But perhaps in this day, even more than that, we have to be intent on demonstrating the efficacy of God's truth, the fact that it works. It works for us. Our unholy twists on holy matrimony are begetting the same consequences they are for anyone out there. Listen to me. You'll never be robbed of the mercy and grace of Almighty God. It's grace greater than all our sin. I love that song because I need to be reminded of it because I'm a human like you. But we are robbing God of his glory by diminishing the sanctity of marriage, which is meant to be an earthly reflection of an eternal, unconditional, permanent, heavenly reality in which the Lord Jesus Christ assumes his role as our heavenly husband and we forevermore once we consummate our spiritual union with him, we don't have seven days of feasting in Simcha. It's called eternity of rejoicing in the presence of Almighty God. There's a whole lot at stake, folks, with regard to how we conduct ourselves relationally, sexually, maritally. I don't have to give you the statistics. We're competing with the world to see whose divorce rate is higher. We're neck and neck. Statistics show that the vast majority of our teens are going to have premarital sex. Church kids. I don't want to hurt anyone, be hateful, anything like that. I'm just a person like everybody else. But I'm wondering why the culture is passing us by. I don't understand. Isn't the gospel the power of God for salvation? Not if we invalidate it. (laughs) Not if we mitigate against it by living lives absolutely contrary to it. How could we declare the utter holiness of the Lord Jesus and not be holy? It's a mixed message. Some people call it hypocrisy. Dear folks, Father knows best. And he gave us the best bridegroom, his own son. I do not have to win his affection, nor do you. I have it freely, by faith, in accordance with his grace, the bridal price being his shed blood. I just need to live up to who I am. I am the bride of Christ. Keep your hands off me. I don't need pornography. I don't need this stuff. I want it, just like you. I don't need it. I'm wedded. Can you see my veil? I'm 
purchased with a price. So are you. The world does not need more Christians. It needs more Christians who are so sanctified, set apart, who've been in the mikvah bath. So that people see. Listen to me. If this place was characterized by holy matrimony, the world would break down our doors to get in here. Because they don't know how to pull it off. They don't know how to make it work. They don't know how to make relationships last. We don't either. But our father does. Let's just do things his way. The more I walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, the more I realize I don't have a clue what's going on. (laughs) There's just a million things I don't get. But one thing I get, I've been gotten, begotten by the blood of the Lamb. I want to assume the feminine role and defer to the judgment of my heavenly husband. I don't want to think through how to do life. It's too hard. It's too taxing. I just want to be led by a heavenly husband and do things his way. Don't you? One day we're going to say, Baruch Haba'ah, Bashem Adonai. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And until then, we clean ourselves up. We get ready. We wait for the shout. We wait for the trumpet. We light our lamp. We have nothing to hide. (laughs) We say, take me, Lord Jesus. I'm ready to go home. Lord in heaven, you did not just save us from the penalty of sin. That would have been enough. It's much more. You saved us from the futility of life. You saved us from a compulsion to do things our way. You saved us from the inevitability of being mastered by our feelings. Instead, you said, follow me. What a joy, what a privilege, what a relief. Thank you for saving us from our insatiable appetite to be independent and do our own thing. In fact, we pray you would increase our sense of dependence on you. It would be worth forfeiting health, well-being, jobs, money, homes, everything. If that's what it would take. For us to cling to you for blessing. Loose our hold on our own lives. And said, bridegroom, lead on. Lead on. You lead. We, as the bride, we follow. Lord Jesus, we look forward to your return. And thank you for not letting us know when. We'd get lazy, sloppy. Now we're alert. Keyed up. Filled with anticipation, expectation. Looking forward to the time when we see you face to face. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for marrying us. This we pray in your precious name. Amen.